You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 153 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. When we left Stonewall Jackson at the end of the last show, it was early June 1862, and he was at the small village of Port Republic. As y'all recall, Jackson and the Valley Army had narrowly slipped through the trap that Abraham Lincoln had tried to set for them. Stonewall had recognized his predicament and responded by driving his men to the limit of their endurance. That hard marching by the rebels and a woeful lack of aggression by the federal commanders allowed the Valley Army to make its escape through Strasburg. Having narrowly slipped through the Union pincers, the last thing anyone expected Jackson to do was to turn and fight. He certainly didn't need to, For by early June, it could be fairly said that Stonewall had done everything that the Confederate authorities in Richmond had asked him to do, and more. For two and a half months, he had managed, by his aggressiveness and audacity, and a growing reputation for both, to create a diversion in the Shenandoah Valley that had thrown a sizable wrench into the federal campaign to capture Richmond. So now, having accomplished all that had been asked of him, and as Fremont and Shields continued coming at him from two different directions, Jackson might have thought only of escape, either farther up the valley or over the Blue Ridge Mountains to join Robert E. Lee in front of Richmond, but simply running away had never figured into Stonewall's plans. If the valley campaign up to this point had been mostly about speed and maneuver, The game this time became mostly about bridges. If he was going to stand and fight his pursuers at some point, Stonewall needed to keep Fremont and Shields from easily uniting. He needed to keep them separated, split up. And by burning three important bridges across the south fork of the Shenandoah River before Shields could get to them, Stonewall had ensured that the two enemy forces wouldn't be able to unite against him easily. But there was still a fourth bridge at Port Republic, and it became the most critical piece in Jackson's strategy. If you picked up our book recommendation from episode number 145, the Osprey publishing book about the Valley Campaign, you'll find a really good map of Cross Keys and Port Republic on page 75. But even if you don't have a map to look at, here's what you need to know about the reason Stonewall Jackson had chosen Port Republic 
over every other place he could have gone. He chose that spot because of its peculiar location at the junction of three rivers. The 50 or so buildings in the village of Port Republic nestled on a peninsula at the confluence of the North River, flowing from the west, and the South River, flowing from the south, which came together at the eastern edge of town to form the South Fork of the Shenandoah River. There was a sturdy covered bridge over the rampaging North River. This was the key fourth bridge that we mentioned a moment ago. This bridge was now the only way for Fremont and Shields to easily unite. Jackson's immediate goal was to keep control of or destroy the Port Republic Bridge in order to keep the Yankees from uniting. For the moment, Stonewall chose to leave the bridge intact because it offered attractive tactical possibilities for striking at the two enemy forces pursuing him. And so on the morning of Sunday, June 8th, Jackson's dispositions were as follows. His headquarters was in Port Republic itself, while 7,000 men under his direct command were camped outside of town just north of the North River. And then a 5,000-man force under Ewell's command was about four miles north at a hamlet known as Cross Keys. Jackson's full attention was on Fremont's force, which would approach from the west by way of Cross Keys. Stonewall hoped to entice Fremont into attacking Ewell, and then he, Stonewall, would lead the rest of the army in a counterattack that would defeat the Yankees. Having thus punished Fremont, Jackson could then withdraw across the North River Bridge, destroy it, and either use nearby Brown's Gap to march over the Blue Ridge, or he could remain in the vicinity of Port Republic and strike at Shields, who would be approaching from the east. But an unexpected event on the morning of June 8th changed Stonewall's plans, for Shields, or at least one portion of Shields' command, was much, much closer than Jackson thought. For all his cleverness in choosing a spot, Port Republic, where he might have the opportunity to strike at one or both of the enemy forces pursuing him, Stonewall Jackson now made several critical errors in judgment. One was his neglect of the key to his entire plan, the bridge over the North River. Jackson's entire army was bivouacked north of the river, Ewell's men at Cross Keys, and the rest of the army within supporting distance. No guard had been placed on the North River Bridge itself, and then only a very light guard had been assigned to watch the two fords over the South River, over which a threat from the east, from Shields, would come. The South River was chest-high and running like a mill race because of the recent heavy rains, but it was still fordable and was all that separated the Confederates from Shields' oncoming force. Jackson compounded his mistake by ordering the Valley Army's enormous supply train to park in the fields behind headquarters, both highly visible and highly vulnerable to any attack from the east. An advance unit from Shields Command need only cross the fordable South River to get at the wagons. Worse still, loss of the crucial North River Bridge would mean that Stonewall's army and its supplies would be on opposite sides of that unfordable river. 
what had happened to cloud Jackson's mind and lead him to focus his full attention on Fremont and almost totally disregard the possibility of any threat from the East? Well, firstly, Stonewall seems to have assumed that Shields' advance would be slowed down considerably by bad roads. But then there was also the matter of Jackson's almost complete physical exhaustion, about which his staff was becoming more and more concerned. Stonewall was at least as tired as his men, many of whom had simply been dropping by the roadside during the recent brutal marches. There's little evidence that Jackson had had a single full night's sleep since the Valley Campaign began. More often than not, he was up at what he euphemistically called early dawn, what we would call the middle of the night, working on the endless details of command. All of this cost him rest. And on many nights recently, the wet weather precluded sleep at all. By the first week of June, there's little question that fatigue was affecting his ability to make clear decisions. Stonewall needed rest badly. Aide Sandy Pendleton thought his chief at this time to be, quote, completely broken down, end quote. At any rate, with regard to his initial dispositions here at Port Republic, the consequences of Stonewall's errors in judgment were not long in coming. At about 8.30 on the morning of Sunday, June 8th, a force of around 150 Federal cavalry and four guns under the command of Colonel Samuel Carroll forded the South River, galloped into Port Republic, and created an astounding amount of havoc in a short time. As you guys will recall, after Stonewall and the Valley Army had slipped away through Strasburg, James Shields had received Irvin McDowell's reluctant permission to take his division and try for a second time to cut off Jackson's escape route while Fremont pressed the rebels from behind. Well, as Shields' division set out on that mission, the Irishman had given a special assignment to Sam Carroll, the aggressive commander of his 4th Brigade. Carroll was to go forward rapidly with some cavalry and four pieces of artillery, less caissons, in order to beat the Confederates to the bridge across the south fork of the Shenandoah near Conrad's store. Carroll was also to select a body of infantry, marching without baggage, to follow close behind as support. But as we mentioned in the last show, Stonewall Jackson, while he didn't know about Carroll's special assignment, he nevertheless correctly surmised Shields' overall intentions, and he sent a detachment of rebel cavalry out to burn those three key bridges ahead of the Irishman's advance, including the bridge at Conrad's store. After that, though, Stonewall lost track of Shields' whereabouts. But, as we've said, he didn't consider Shields much of a threat, since he expected the Irishman's force would get bogged down as the heavy rains turned the roads the Yankees were traveling over into muddy nightmares. And those wretched conditions did, in fact, slow the advance of the main body of Shields' force to a crawl. But, unknown to Stonewall, Carroll's flying column was still forging ahead toward Port Republic and that fourth crucial bridge. 29-year-old Colonel Samuel S. Carroll was a Marylander and a graduate of the West Point class of 1856. 
Carroll had arrived at Romney in December 1861 as the new colonel of the 8th Ohio. He struck officers and men as, quote, a dashing officer anxious to distinguish himself and above all to qualify his regiment for its duties, end quote. He quickly gained a reputation as a solid officer who could look after himself and his troops, which perhaps explains why Shields trusted him with the special assignment. When he had given Carroll command of the flying column, Shields had ordered him to save the bridge at Port Republic. On Saturday, June 7th, however, it seems Carroll then received a directive from Shields telling him to burn the bridge. A second dispatch apparently caught up with Carroll later on Saturday, though, and that one ordered him not to destroy the bridge, but to hold it at all hazards. Carroll pushed his men hard on Saturday, and that evening, as a heavy rain set in, he halted his column six miles short of Port Republic, intending to give his men a three-hour rest before closing in on the village. Scouts, who Carroll had sent on ahead, now returned with news that only strengthened his desire to press forward. The Federal scouts had easily eluded the few careless enemy cavalry pickets, and they returned with an accurate picture of the location of the vulnerable rebel supply trains and the absence of any Confederate force of consequence guarding the South River approach to Port Republic. At 4 a.m. on Sunday morning, Carroll had his command ready to resume the advance. He led the way with 150 troopers of the 1st West Virginia Cavalry. Just as an interesting footnote, but accompanying them was 22-year-old Captain Miles Keogh, who in 1876, while serving in Custer's 7th Cavalry, would die at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. On Sunday morning, June 8, 1862, the four guns of Captain Lucius Robinson's Ohio Battery moved with the Federal Cavalry. Following after the horsemen were Carroll's infantry, the 7th Indiana, then the Union, 1st Virginia, next came the 84th Pennsylvania, and finally the 110th Pennsylvania. The Federal infantry, marching without baggage, were very wet and very tired, utterly worn out by the miserable trek over muddy roads. Off went Carroll's cavalry and artillery over the muddy and partly flooded road that ran parallel to the south fork of the Shenandoah. The infantry of the 7th Indiana struggled to keep up. Many of the men were barefoot after their shoes had fallen apart on the march. At 6 a.m., the head of the Federal column halted a mile below Port Republic. Carroll and Keogh took advantage of an early morning fog and the absence of rebel pickets to survey Jackson's dispositions. Not a single Confederate cavalryman interrupted the two Federal officers' reconnaissance. The rebel horsemen were still reeling from the devastating loss of their leader, Turner Ashby, in that skirmish south of Harrisonburg just a few days before. Indeed, Jedediah Hotchkiss reported that most of the two companies of cavalry that Jackson had sent out to warn of an enemy approach from the east, quote, took to its heels and went off toward Brown's Gap, leaving the river road entirely open, end quote. Carroll, for his part, could scarcely contain his excitement over the prize that awaited him. Orderly Sergeant James Gilday of Robinson's battery was mounted beside his captain, awaiting the order to advance, when the colonel rode up and said, Captain, there are no troops over in town except a cattle guard and train. 
we can cross over and knock hell out of them. Carroll also reiterated his order from Shields not to burn the bridge over the North River. The last thing Stonewall Jackson or his men expected that Sabbath morning was an attack. Jackson himself planned to attend worship services and then conduct a general tour of the lines. Jedediah Hotchkiss lay in his tent, quote, sick with a violent headache, having been exhausted from duty by the general, end quote. Most of the weary Confederate soldiers, grateful for the break from the never-ending marching, lounged about their camps, writing letters, preparing for religious services, or just relaxing. But General Tolliver, whose brigade rested along the hilltop about three-quarters of a mile above the North River Bridge, ignored the order for, for worship services and instead directed his men to assemble for inspection. Colonel Fulkerson of the 37th Virginia had just begun a letter. Dr. Hunter McGuire, Jackson's chief medical officer, attended to more serious business. He was seen to the sick and wounded soldiers laid out in a Methodist church on Main Street. The time was about 8.30 a.m. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Carroll completed his final preparations for a dash into Port Republic. He decided to split Robinson's four-gun battery into two equal sections. One section was to enter town with the cavalry opposite the center of Port Republic. The other two guns were posted on a low elevation east of town, known to the locals as Yost Hill which offered a clear field of fire to the covered bridge, standing less than a half mile away. Advance elements of the 7th Indiana staggered into place behind the hill. Their assignment, and presumably that of the rest of the Federal infantry when they arrived on the scene, would be to hold the bridge if the cavalry succeeded in capturing it. In his excitement, Carroll rather foolishly announced his presence by having the two-gun section with him unlimber opposite the middle ford across the South River and open fire on the town, 
before the Federal Cavalry was ready to cross, the premature cannon fire struck the steeple of the Methodist Church, and broken shingles crashed down upon the line of ambulances parked outside the building. Dr. McGuire at once stormed amongst the panicked drivers, threatening to shoot the first man who fled and abandoned the sick and wounded inside the church. McGuire later admitted, quote, In order to enforce my commands, I was using some profane language. End quote. While thus engaged, McGuire felt a hand on his shoulder, and turning around, he saw Jackson, who, with his staff trailing behind, was heading quickly up Main Street toward the North Bank and safety. But Jackson had paused in his flight long enough to scold McGuire, saying, Doctor, don't you think you can manage these men without swearing? At his headquarters at Madison Hall, Jackson had gotten his first inkling of trouble from three extremely agitated rebel cavalrymen who hadn't fled towards Brown's Gap. But their nearly incoherent warnings made little sense, and they were dismissed with orders to acquire more definite information. Another trooper galloped up a few moments later with a report that Yankee cavalry were nearby, but Jackson also greeted this news with skepticism, merely telling the young man to go back and fight them. But any remaining doubt Stonewall or his staff may have had about the Federal presence vanished with the first shots from Robinson's guns, and they left Madison Hall with all haste. The 150 Yankee horsemen splashed across the middle ford of the South River and emerged onto Main Street just minutes after Jackson and most of his staff passed by. Carroll swam his horse across the river after his cavalry, and the two cannon followed. The colonel made his dispositions rapidly. To a sergeant of the 1st West Virginia Cavalry, Carroll seemed to be, quote, very anxious to fight someone, end quote. Carroll split his horsemen into two sections, sending two-thirds charging southwest along Main Street in the hope of seizing or at least stampeding the Confederate trains, and the remaining third he dispatched to secure the North River Bridge. Carroll sent one cannon, commanded by Sergeant James Gilday, to help guard the bridge. The second gun was unlimbered on Main Street, not far from the Methodist Church, and positioned facing west. The colonel placed himself between the two guns. In his book on the Valley Campaign, Peter Cousins writes that, quote, Events moved with lightning speed. One that did not occur, but should have, was the burning of the North River Bridge. Despite his orders to the contrary, common sense should have dictated to Carroll its destruction. Had he burned the, the span, Jackson and his army would have been separated from their trains and, more ominously, denied ready means of leaving the valley by way of Brown's Gap. Means were certainly at hand for the task. As his limber and gun bounced up Main Street, Sergeant Gilday noticed a large circle of fire in front of a blacksmith shop. I saw that a good chance to fire the bridge if orders had not prohibited it, said Gilday. I could have had it in a blaze before Jackson could have got his men up to charge it. Lieutenant Lemley of the 1st West Virginia Cavalry agreed. We could have easily burnt the bridge, as there was plenty of fire in the street at the end of the bridge, where the Rebs were cutting and tightening the tires of some of their wagons. Some Federal troopers had begun carrying brands ignited in that fire to the bridge, until an officer, 
at least two men claimed it was Carol himself, told them to extinguish them. As it was, Gilday had to content himself with unlimbering his six-pounder and aligning the barrel with a piece of high ground, perhaps seventy-five yards to the left of the bridge, for there a mounted officer was making it known by shouts and gestures that he wanted Gilday's gun to cross the bridge. Gilday, having concluded the man was a befuddled rebel, adjusted the elevation screw to get the range of the man. The befuddled rebel was, in fact, Stonewall Jackson, who, having crossed the bridge to safety and supposing that it was his own guns down the road, was shouting and gesturing for them to get out of there and across the bridge as quickly as possible. But before Sergeant Gilday could open up on Jackson, Captain Robinson rode up, yelling not to fire, that the man across the river was a Federal. Gilday disagreed, but Robinson told him to hold his fire until he consulted with Carroll. A minute later, Gilday heard the colonel shout, Give them hell, sergeant! But Gilday remembered later on that, quote, It was too late. Jackson had discovered his mistake. When I received permission to fire, he was going to the crest of the hill, and I could not get the range quick enough to follow him. Jackson was having a hard time of it there in the hills overlooking the bridge. His near escape from town and his nearly fatal encounter with the Federal gun had temporarily robbed him of his characteristic calm. Captain William T. Pogue, whose Rockbridge artillery camped on a hill near the bridge, said he, quote, never saw Jackson as much stirred up at any other time, end quote. One of the artillerymen, Lanty Blackford, agreed, saying, quote, up rode Jackson himself, with more signs of excitement than I ever saw him manifest before. Addressing no one in particular, Jackson's first and only words when he reached the battery were, Have the guns hitched up! Have the guns hitched up! As he galloped off to the infantry, he shouted, Have the long roll beat! Have the long roll beat! The first infantry that Jackson came upon was the 37th Virginia of Tolliver's Brigade, already drawn up for inspection. The 37th double-timed in column to the bluff above the bridge, with Stonewall riding with them. As the head of the column came within sight of the bridge, Jackson directed the regiment to fire and charge. As the Confederates dashed forward, Sergeant Gilday saw them and later recalled, quote, Without taking aim, they brought their guns to the hip and fired down on us. If they had not been so excited, I do not think that one of us would have got away. As it was, we suffered some. The rebel volley startled Gilday's horses, and they ran off with the limber chest. The number three gunner was struck in the forehead, and as another member of the gun crew helped the injured man to the rear, most of the rest of the men took the opportunity to skedaddle also. Only two men stayed with Gilday, and together with the sergeant, they ran the gun out onto the bridge and loaded it with double canister. Gilday then told the two men to run. He would fire the final shot. Fortunately for the rebels rushing onto the covered bridge, Gilday chose to aim the cannon not straight down the enclosed space, but at an angle. The sergeant later said he did so, quote, with the intention of weakening the timbers and to ricochet the shots, end quote. But by aiming the gun in that way, the impact of the canister was actually negligible, and the charging Confederates suffered only one man killed and two wounded. 
Then Jackson ordered the trailing regiment, the 10th Virginia, to the heights opposite Yost Hill and to fire upon the two Yankee cannon across the way. The range was too great for the musketry to have any effect, but all in all, there had nevertheless been a serious change for the worse in Carroll's fortunes. Meanwhile, on the southwest side of Port Republic, where Carroll had sent the majority of his cavalry, the Confederates had averted disaster through the heroic efforts of a captain and his 20-man squad, aided by two veteran lieutenants of an otherwise green battery of artillery. At the first boom of the Federal guns from across the river, panic seized the wagon train, and the fright was magnified by the stream of terrified civilians who fled westward to avoid the Yankee cavalry pouring into the east side of town. The men of Captain James Carrington's untried Charlottesville artillery were camped in the fields just west of Port Republic, and five of the battery's six guns joined the stampede. But Captain Samuel J.C. Moore of the 2nd Virginia had no intention of running from the fight. Moore, along with two lieutenants, one sergeant, and twenty-two men, had previously been sent into town with orders to guard the upper ford of the South River near Jackson's headquarters. With the surprise Yankee attack, Moore and his men were destined to become the most important two dozen soldiers in the Confederacy for a few exciting moments. At the first hint of trouble, Moore had led his men to a perfect defensive position, a stone fence in the corner of a yard, near a point where Yankee cavalry charging down Main Street would have to veer sharply to the right. Kneeling behind the stone wall, Moore's men would be invisible until they opened fire. Moore and his men didn't have long to wait until the head of the enemy mounted column came into view, the Yankee troopers riding four abreast. When the rebel captain gave the order for his men to open fire, the head of the Federal column recoiled. The Confederates quickly reloaded, and Moore led his men some distance out from behind the fence to deliver a second volley, and at that the Yankees retreated back up Main Street, and Moore hurried his men back to the protection of the stone wall. While the rattled Federal cavalry regrouped for another dash down Main Street, the one gun of the Charlottesville artillery that hadn't moved off, a 12-pounder howitzer, now unlimbered beside Moore's men. When the Yankees came on again, charging around the bend of the road, the one shot the inexperienced artillerymen fired sailed at least 10 feet over the heads of the enemy troopers, but it was enough to frighten them into a second retreat. As the smoke and dust cleared, three more pieces of the Charlottesville artillery tardily appeared, and a few moments later, the last two cannon came up. These five guns unlimbered so as to rake the length of Main Street with fire. It took only a few rounds before Carroll ordered his horsemen to quit the town and make their way back across the South River. Captain Robinson hurried his second cannon out of town and across the river behind the fleeing cavalry, only to abandon the piece when it became entangled in some trees on the opposite shore. Jackson now deployed his infantry and artillery in Port Republic and along the heights overlooking the South Fork, and the overpowering Confederate fire drove the Yankee guns off Yost Hill and stampeded the 7th Indiana into a headlong retreat. 
The 84th and 110th Pennsylvania never fired a shot, but joined in the general exodus. Stonewall had survived a serious scare. He had almost fatally underestimated the ability of shields to strike at Port Republic and the vital North River Bridge. When Carroll's raiders gained possession of the bridge, it was Jackson's worst nightmare. The Yankees had only to burn the bridge, and Stonewall and his army would be separated from their supply trains and cut off from their escape route over Brown's Gap. Fremont would have Stonewall cornered against the rampaging North River. But miraculously, the Yankee raiders didn't burn the crucial bridge, and Jackson drove off the gatecrashers. However, while Stonewall had cobbled together a counterattack to eject Carroll's raiders from Port Republic, Dick Yule, on that busy Sabbath day, had faced a far more ominous threat four miles to the north, an attack on his three brigades by Fremont's entire army. That fight on June 8th was the Battle of Cross Keys, and next time we'll look at what happened there, and we'll also see how Stonewall intended to deal with Shields' lead brigades, fighting which turned into the Battle of Port Republic on June 9th. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Conquering the Valley, Stonewall Jackson at Port Republic by Robert K. Crick. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations over at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we wrap up this episode, we want to thank Jonathan B. from New York and Anthony C., also from New York, for their donations. Thanks, guys. And then we have several new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank, Peter, Linda, and Bo. And thanks also to those of you who sent uh, encouraging words and wishes for a speedy recovery uh, regarding my recent surgery. Those were much appreciated. Okay, and then last but not least, thanks to all of you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week for the battles of Cross Keys and Port Republic, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.